Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. This is Jim Marty reporting from Massachusetts this time. I'm on a business trip to do a site inspection of a very large cultivation facility here in Massachusetts. Um, I'm on Route 2, pulled over at a gas station um, in a rent-a-car. But, uh, Larry, are you up there in Chicago? I am, Jim. Nice to hear from you. Uh, Not surprising, you're one of the best-traveled men in the cannabis industry, so... Um, glad that you've made it out to the East Coast and, uh, you know, keeping tabs on everything that's going out there. Yep. Uh, as always, I'm here in lovely Chicago. Uh, lovely. We have nice sunny days and cold freezing nights, uh, but at least no snow yet. So we're, uh, we're grateful for that. I'm sure it's coming somewhere down the road uh, and we'll see what happens. Um, so that'll be great, Jim. You're out there. You have a chance to check out, uh, you know, maybe some of the adult dispensaries and see how things are going out there in Massachusetts, huh? Yes, I'm in the the land of the sixty dollar eighth. Well, that's that's Illinois for right now too. We're we're the sixty dollar eighth, and that's in the medical. If you go into the adult use, it's eighty dollars an eighth. Wow. No, Colorado, we still have our twenty dollar eighth, twenty five dollar eighth, ten dollar uh, joints. I'll tell you, we could get there in Illinois if we could just get some more damn licenses issued, so that we had some cultivators and some dispensary people. What in the in the weeks I think Jim since you and I last spoke, uh, uh, the state of Illinois stepped out and uh, indicated that they're 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 finished negotiating with everybody on this. They're just going to step back and let the lawsuits run their course. So you know we're we're looking at probably three or four months of litigation unless uh, you know somewhere in the midst of all of that the parties can figure out a way to reach a resolution that they haven't reached yet, um, and then the court will make a ruling. This is just for the dispensaries. And then, uh, you know, if people have thought it this far, you have to believe that the party that comes out on the short end is either going to file a motion for reconsideration or an appeal or both. Um, you know, and then if somebody files an appeal now, I mean, they have no provision for for launching the program until all of this nonsense is over. And now they're telling us that the nonsense can't be over any earlier than spring of next year, which already puts the dispensary people one full year behind when they should have found out whether or not they get their licenses. It's really just about as bad a situation as you can imagine. Well, I'm at the two-year mark in this Massachusetts project. I'm trying to get off the ground a large cultivation here. That's why I'm here, is that this existing cultivator and retailer, and I don't mind saying their name and give them a little plug, Revolutionary. I believe they're the largest in Massachusetts that may partner with my client, and uh, that's why I'm here. So yet yeah, at the two-year mark here in Massachusetts too. So Illinois is not unique. Yeah, you know, and it, we we all get frustrated. But like you and I always say, I, I'd rather be frustrated over a program uh, as long as I have one in place than you know be talking about an ideal program that just exists in my mind. So uh, we move forward and uh, and and hope for the best. And um, you know, we'll see what happens down the road. Uh, in the meantime. Uh, that's the exciting news here. Uh, not too much else going on out there. Um, a little bit of talk, Jim, over another one of these, uh, states rights acts regarding marijuana that they're talking about trying to uh, get some traction going on in the house of representatives. Again, um, I suspect that we'll, we'll, we'll probably see not quite as much activity until after the Senate runoff races in Georgia in January, and we get some idea uh, as to whether uh, McConnell or somebody else is going to be, uh, you know, controlling the Senate 
uh, in terms of, you know, whether bills will have an opportunity to move forward or not. Um, and, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, there's, there's lots of things out there that would be good to get going. Uh, but it's, you know, it always is politics, no matter which way we're talking about. And, um, I suppose we have to wait for Biden to establish his full cabinet and see who he's going to have in there in the appropriate positions and and try to get a feel for what their feelings are on all of this. But, uh, you know, either way, uh, the one thing, again, that we know is it's very, very popular. I just read an article in uh, I don't remember which one it was, one of the one of the magazines that's always publishing online now. And it was, you know, basically about how rednecks like to get high, too. And that's something you and I have been talking about for a long time. Uh, that it doesn't matter what side of the political alley you fall on, people just like to smoke marijuana. So hopefully uh, we can put those other issues behind us and, you know, find some consensus on that. Yes. Um, the new year looks very promising for the cannabis industry with uh, five new state programs coming online, including adult use in New Jersey, which I think is going to trigger a domino effect throughout the Northeast, um, which will, like, our Massachusetts clients, because right now they're enjoying being surrounded by states that don't have adult use. So here, right. uh, an inventory shortage here, because um, you have a lot of cross-border traffic from you know, New York, Vermont, Connecticut. Um, I guess Rhode Island, I believe, has adult use, but I'm not positive about that. New Hampshire does not, Maine does. So yeah, Massachusetts is surrounded by at least half the states that touch its border do not have adult use. So that drives sales here and um yeah that's kind of what's going on with me larry um we're lucky enough to have a guest today would you like to introduce our guest i would love to um you know jim we can all sit here and talk about uh what it takes to get uh, you know a cultivation up and running or a dispensary or how we get a new industry in illinois or any other state that we're talking about up and running and it, it's clear that you can't sell marijuana without marijuana. So we're always circling back around to the cultivators to get a program successfully launched. And we hear all sorts of things about air conditioning and humidity control and hydroponics and all of that kind of stuff, you know, watering levels. And, you know, quite frankly, I don't understand any of it. I just know what I like in the finished product. However, none of that takes place. And the thing that we all forget about is that it's a plant that does grow in the soil. And uh, while I couldn't sit here and tell you anything about soil conditions and what impact it has on marijuana, uh, we are certainly lucky enough today to have a guest who can do just that. And our guest today is a gentleman named Lee Spivey. Lee is with Good Earth Organics. And uh, Lee, welcome to our show. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So, um, you know, let's cut right to the chase here. Uh, tell us, how'd you get into uh, cannabis and what, for God's sakes, got you into dirt? All right. Well, that's a cool story. I started growing back in about 2006. Um, my mother-in-law taught me. Wow. Uh, rest her soul. And anyway, moving on, wow. she um, taught me how to do that. So we um, got some soil in 2008 from a company called Good Earth Organics. And we started growing in that and eventually started producing the best cannabis we had ever produced before. Um, wow. Fully organic uh, compost teas all that good stuff and just the soil just keeps going and going. And so eventually they had an ad out in a newspaper somewhere uh, hiring for a job. And my wife went to interview for that job. Um, and they told her she wasn't qualified because she wasn't the grower. And so I went and interviewed the next day and landed the job. It was wow. a 
just a simple retail job that you need to have the cannabis knowledge in to be able to consult the customers that come in, right? So sure. retail, but consultant as well. And so I did that for about six years with the same company, opened a few different locations. And then uh, the company got sold off to a gentleman named Tim Clark, who is now taking it national. And so last year they asked me to be the marketing manager. And here I am in front of you today, um, trying to take this company national and improve the quality of cannabis around the nation through the soil in which it's grown. And, and tell us, uh, for, for those of us that are uninitiated and of which I am one, uh, what differences can soil conditions and, and the, the makeup of the soil have on the finished product? Well, organic soils and nutrients definitely help ensure our customers pass state requirements for purity, right? So a lot of the states that have adult use, recreational, or medical programs, they have uh, testing that the cannabis has to go through before it ever hits the shelf. Sure. Right? And so we develop all of our products to ensure that those tests are passed without um, thought behind it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, you know, we also uh, our, our soils, they, they hold water and they have, you know, high mineral nutrient levels and mm-hmm. optimized pH ranges um, for the growers that are need to know and control what's happening in the soil. You know what I mean? It's, uh, it's definitely a, a thing. So I want to sit down and I want, you know, and I want to grow blue dream and I, you know, that's my strain. I like it. I want to be able to grow enough of it to supply a dispensary. Um, do I come to somebody like you and sit down and consult with you and say, Hey, tell me what kind of soil to use or do most of your customers already have a pretty good idea of what they want to do? You know, most customers that are growing already have an idea of what they want to use to grow their plants and what kind of medium they want to use. Now, okay. I would sit down and consult with a, a big farm that wants to grow a mass quantity on how to do that um, and maintain their quality controls. Okay. And what about here in Illinois, for instance? You know, we're about to get uh, 40 new craft grower licenses on file. Uh, the downside of the craft grow is they're very limited in space to 5,000 square foot canopy for right now. Eventually, they'll get to expand it out. We think maybe as much as up to 14 or 20,000 square feet. But in the meantime, all of the people who are medical cultivators and are now also doing it in adult use are working in locations that are each at least 100,000 square feet in size. Um, you know, and I know people here who are going to be saying, hey, look, if you want to make a dent in that market as a craft grower, you better come up with some really good genetics and really good product. So one of the things that I would imagine that uh, somebody like you could help out with is if I'm going to go out to California and, you know, and start looking around for some uh, really unique strains. Uh, again, would that be something that once I've done that and identified that I could then turn to you and help you with, come in and help me set up soil conditions and stuff for growing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have a few different soil blends that are already predetermined by where and what you're doing, you know. So our mm-hmm. Cloud9 is a hydroponic seed start blend that most people use indoors for their hydroponics and simply liquid feed from start to finish, right? And it's Got already it. designed for multiple feedings per day, things like that. So uh, somebody who's growing indoors in a cocoa-based um, media is going to have a good roundabout with, with the cloud nine, you know, and then we have our, our, our garden blend, our general garden, you know, the, the grandma mm-hmm. that wants to grow her herb veggies in the, in the windowsill of her kitchen, you know, we, sure. it, it's, it's called the Zen blend. And it just, it gives you that peace of mind where you don't have to think about it so much. You mm-hmm. just water it and forget it. You know? Well, that's right. very nice. Yeah. A few questions for, for Lee. Um, yeah. Apparently the soil is where it all starts, whether it's a seed or a clone. Um, you know, one of the big decisions that a cultivator, uh, someone's just coming online and designing their 
cultivation facility is soil versus cocoa. Lee, can you give us your opinions on, on soil versus cocoa? And can you explain what cocoa is again, for those of us who might not know? <laughs> Absolutely. So cocoa is the fiber off of a coconut husk, right? That is um, traveled from afar, brought here. Um, and it can be purchased in multiple grades, salty, not salty, buffered, not buffered, um, et cetera. I'm sure you'll get more into that later on down the road. But yeah, cocoa blends that people grow in um, is much more controllable and you can feed more liquid on a daily basis. It, it holds less water, so it drains faster. Um, and then they have, you know, a peat and perlite blend as well that, you know, can allow for more water retention if you don't want it to drain as fast. Um, and so the indoor growers that are using cocoa, um, I, I know growers out in Michigan, you know, the um, heavyweight heads over there are using nothing but cocoa and they're doing it in big canopies and they're winning cups with it. Um, personally, I, I don't use just cocoa. I like more of a, a blend myself. I like not to walk into my room every single day and have to feed things twice a day. I don't like to go through that many nutrients. Um, but yeah, there is um, viable reasons to use all different medias and it just comes down to what the grower wants to do and how they want to get it done. Okay. Now that's a good explanation. And, um, with your soil, do you have different blends for different climates? Certainly, you know, the, the California desert is very different from a warehouse up in Massachusetts. Um, do you custom blend for the climates? We don't really custom blend for the different climates. Your environmental controls are really going to dictate those aspects of your grow, you know, the soil, if you want it to hold more water, you buy the Gaia's gift, which we haven't talked about yet is a compost heavy nutrient dense blend, which is meant specifically for outdoor cannabis growing. Right. And so if you're doing that in the Humboldt counties or the Southern Oregon's, you're going to water a lot less because we have a nice hot summer here. Right. And so if you're growing in like Michigan or Massachusetts or somewhere where it's going to have a lot more humidity, you're going to want to use a Zen blend, which has an NPK still, a very good one, just not quite as compost dense to where you, you're you not going to get that same sort of um, like powdery mildew issues from the extra humidity coming up out of the soil, stuff like that. Gotcha. Well, here's one of the things I'd like to know, Lee. First of all, tell us exactly where you're located. We are located in Cave Junction, Oregon, which is at the tip of the Emerald Triangle out here. Have you guys been working with uh, people in the Emerald Triangle? We have, yes. For uh, over 10 years, we've been serving um, large and small customers um, from Mendo to Humboldt to Jackson to Josephine. Okay. Um, do you work with companies uh, to the east that are in states to the east of California or are you in Oregon? Are you pretty much West Coast people? No, that's a great question, my friend. We are registered in about 20 states at the moment. And so okay. we are able to sell at your local mom and pop shops, um, Home Depots, wherever. Um, customers just need to go in and request the products and they are able to ship out to them. In Oklahoma, we do have distributors set up, um, which are much closer for our folks in Florida and Texas and Missouri sure. and Kansas and stuff like that. Um, so they have product on site. Tiger Stripe Genetics has good genetics and good at organic soils on site um, available for their customers. We have Sanders Nursery locked in and um, Hippie Soil out there as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of places um, over and we're moving out even farther. We're going out to look at another manufacturing facility so that we can get the price of this uh, beautiful soil down even more for the customers out there. Can some can people go online and buy direct from you? 
Absolutely. Um, we can ship direct to farm at the moment pretty much anywhere in the United States as long as you're willing to pay the shipping costs, which at the moment are kind of iffy. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you can go online to goodearthorganics.com as well. And if you just want to buy a gallon or five gallons or a 10-gallon bag, you can purchase it right there as well. And if people have questions about it, can they you know, either write you the questions online or you know, set up phone calls with you or whatever to discuss them out? Yeah, for sure. You know, they can just email info at goodearthorganics.com. Any questions they have, they can log on to the website, goodearthorganics.com, drop us a line right there, sign up for the newsletter, make a purchase, share with their friends anything they want to do. Sounds good. That's uh, probably a service that will be popular here. Uh, we've uh, we've gone to the point where patients here can now do home grow. And uh, oh, that's so beautiful. some of the very first ones are just starting to do it. And I get a lot of questions about this. You know, where can I get my supplies and what kind of supplies should I be buying and what kind of supplies should I? So this is great. So, I mean, really, you, you can you can work with somebody on a, who's as small as a home grow and somebody who's as large as a commercial cultivator. That's right. Even if you want to grow one plant indoors under a light, we can help. Very but nice. Also, keep in mind. if you want to grow 100 plants outdoors, we can certainly help with that, too. Now, um, I think probably my last question is you're technically not what we would call a top plant company. So um, you don't need to get um, a cannabis license like um, somebody who actually was growing cannabis. Is that correct? Good Earth? That is correct. Um, I myself as a own a company called Canescape LLC, which is a um, consultation company. And Good Earth Organics is an incorporation. And so the owners of that... Are, are different. And so mm-hmm. what that allows me to do is it allows me to go in and consult on pretty much any farm and then take the beautiful soil and introduce it. And, you know, we get return customers all the time. There's, there's, I don't think there's a person out there that's tried the soil and not come back and been like, you know what, you're right. It works. So there's a, there's that. And so when it comes to that stuff, no, we don't need a license, but we do need to be registered as a organic product in those States in order for the dispensaries and the recreational license holders to be able to produce in those soils and then put them into the stores. Very nice. All right. Well, Larry, um, that's all of my questions. Um, should we um, keep Lee on the line with us to talk about some music? Well, I think we should, Jim. And uh, I'm not sure if you were on, but uh, as Lee and I were chatting uh, right before we went on and, and talked about, uh, you know, the jam band scene. And uh, of course, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's our target where we're always going and we like to bring guests on without necessarily a concern about that. And, you know, we've had guests on who want to talk about any kind of music and that's good with us because we're all about music. However, turns out uh, that our guest today, Lee, apparently plays in a jam band himself. Is that correct, Lee? That is correct. Yeah, absolutely. We are the Functicate and we have a great time playing jam on stage. Oh, fantastic. And what instrument do you play? I play the keys, I tickle the ivories and I sing and I dance and I rap. Beautiful. And how many guys are in the band? There's five of us most of the time, and then the saxophone player joins us every now and then and when he can make it. (laughs) And uh, do you guys uh, typically cover uh, existing jam bands, or do you have your own original material? Um, Both. You know, we we definitely cover jam band materials. You know, Mm -hmm. we play some dead, play some fish, and 
you know, the other guys get down and just jam it out and somebody will call out a, a chord or a fingering and we'll just go for it for half an hour or whatever. But, but yeah, we also have original material. You know, there's YouTubes and there's stuff and there's the sure. everything, the social media. So you just Google funk to kit, which is spelled with a Q by the way. You know what? We're going to have, uh, we'll have Dan, our producer, uh, in, in the, um, the information for this week's podcast, you know, he's got a page he posts on. We'll get him to post some of that information so people can check you out. Beautiful. Very nice. And how long have you been playing uh, the keys? Well, about 12 years. Um, the band originally started as the Herbal Crew back in the day, and um, we found it difficult to get bookings around the nation 10 years ago uh, mm -hmm. because our band was called the Herbal Crew, right? So mm -hmm. we changed that to Funk to Kit. Um, but I've been playing for about 10 years with the same group of guys, and they're the, all fun, good to go. You know, they, they help me with all the, the other live music and they play with a lot of other different people. So it's like each member of the band has their own little music. Anyway, yeah, the music scene gets in so involved like that, right? Wonderful. Who are your uh, biggest influences in the jam band scene? Oh, man, the jam band scene. Biggest influences. I wish I could just start naming um, musicians off, off the top of my head. But uh, <laughs> that's, that's not my role in the band. I, I'm, I'm the guy right. that kind of ignores like who people are most yep. of the time. And so my other instrumentalists and my other bandmates would be the ones who'd be able to talk about who their biggest influences are and stuff like that. Do you ever get out to the Gorge to see fish shows? You know, I haven't been to the Gorge yet. It's it's on my bucket list to get out there. Um, it's definitely worth it. I just haven't made it yet. God. Yeah, as have mine. I'm hoping to get there someday as well. I've heard great things about it. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, what kind of uh, places do you play in? Clubs? Uh, bigger places than that? Uh, what's your average audience? Our average audience is between 25 to 75 people, depending on the smaller venues. And then we play, you know, the bigger festivals around the area, which draw between 250 to 500. So we're, we're kind of a smaller band, you know, jam band. I think the largest audience we've ever played in front of was 27,000. And that was at the Las Vegas Hemp Fest in 2017. So it was fun. Wow. It was good. But it was uh, interesting and weird, though, because being the, the jam band that's that's playing, you know, the, the jam and the reggae and the funk and the, and the hip hop and just doing it all. Sure. All at the same time and then you know the headliner for that show is icp so it was a bit different so we're getting all these juggalos and all this other weird shit happening on stage with us at the same time as you know i mean everybody had a great time don't get me wrong but it was it was interesting to say the least okay and has this provided you with an opportunity uh you know to meet any uh you know professional musicians who are out there touring around and stuff yeah absolutely you know we've met um a few different people um I'll name drop Joey Allen from Warrant. He's uh, one of our sponsors from Pearl, who sponsors the drummer. And uh, he's, it's, he was our ticket to NAM. So he was uh, how we got over to NAM and stuff like that. Oh, so wow. we met all the guys from Warrant and stuff. And I mean, we've met a bunch of different, you know, bands over the years, you know, Pato Bantan and um, David Grisman. And um, sure. I, mean, I could go down the list of people that we've played with at Open for it. So you're saying you, you, you guys played in Vietnam? No. Oh, oh, you said Nam. No. I thought did I miss not hear you right? Um, you said you I did say Nam. Um so but not Vietnam. Nam is the um North American musicians meetup thing that happens in Anaheim every year. It's a, it's a like a conference. Sure. That makes that makes a lot more sense to me now. But you know, I thought why not? Maybe you could be playing over there. And as far as David Grisman goes, you know, right. uh, you know, he's he's always at the top of my list. Anybody who could play mandolin for Jerry's okay with me. Right, exactly right. So yeah, we've opened for 
Oh, a lots of people, man. I mean, Duo de Twang, I think, is a mentionable one, right? Like this. So I think that was uh, one of the most memorable because they're the one of the only people that made us put barriers in front of the festival stage to keep the audience back. Oh, really? Yeah. And it was like uh, one of the worst festival turnouts that we'd ever had to. <laughs> so it was like all that unnecessary stuff. Anyway, it was. Uh, but it was that's okay. You know, I mean, look, if somebody thinks you're big enough that you need to have barriers in front of the stage, that's not a bad thing either. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that was a, a mentionable one was do it to twang. That's it's always fun to to play with, play around. Have you found any crossover between your day job and your music? Uh, you know, years ago, before we started going national, we used to travel around with the with the soil tents and, and pop-ups and the soil bags and give them away at the end of our sets and stuff like that. And so um, crossover between the twos, as far as business goes, not so much. As far as marketing and promo goes, it's pretty much always been there. It's one hand feeds the other, and you just got to keep going with what you know. Sure. Sure. Okay. Well, wow. That's all very exciting. Do you uh, get gigs like over New Year's and stuff like that? Um, we usually do. This year has been different. So, right. no, we're right. not even trying to play a room with 10 people in it. So, Have you had a chance to play at all during the pandemic? I mean, whether online or, you know, in a park or anything like that? Yeah, I've done two shows this year. I did Boombox in the Boondocks, which is a an outdoor festival um, mm -hmm. in uh, the Mackenzie River area of Oregon. Okay. And I did a private Halloween party with about uh, two or 300 people uh, over in Tequilma, Oregon. Um, so okay. we, you know, social distancing happens. It's, it's there and outdoors has, has been a, a beautiful thing this year. So at least people can get together somewhere and, and do their thing. But, but I, I do miss the, the bar scene and, and playing in front of, a, oh, yeah. you know, 15, 20 people and blowing their heads off all night. So Now, how uh, did your local area up there fare with all the forest fires this summer? Um, my neighborhood did all right. Um, okay. down the road a little ways, not so good, you know, talent, Ashland, um, right. those areas, Phoenix, they, uh, they pretty much burned. Down. I have a cousin who lives in talent. So we, right. would, we would get reports from her as to what was going. Luckily she and her husband's house was, was spared, but, uh, the stories that we heard were just really devastating. It, it was, you know, I have, um, several friends that are moving back to where they moved from because, they can't find another rental and or the situation isn't mm. as good as it could be, you know? So right. it's, uh, it's right. definitely a thing. Cause you know, the rental market here is, is pretty much nil, you know, you either yeah. could afford it or you can't afford it. There's no in between. So. Got it. And did the, did the, did the fires affect your business at all? Did it affect the growing for some of your customers? It had affected the grows for a few customers not so much the others. Um, the fires luckily stopped with enough time for the rains to kind of hold off. And so the, the CO2 exchange and everything was able to happen and the plants are fresh. And so there's none of that smoky terpenes. There's none of that other stuff that people were, you know, you get online, people talking about, you know, Southern Oregon fireweed and <laughs> it's fire this year. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, anyway. that was going to be my question is, that, I mean, I've heard stuff like that, but by, you know, by, using your dirt instead of the local soil, uh, can they hopefully avoid some of that flavor that people feel might be added because of the fires? Yeah. You know, if you had heavy ash content fall onto the soil and you're tilling that in, you know, it's definitely going to affect the, the terpene production in your plant. But the soil that we make is all sourced ingredients from around the world that are 100% organic inputs. And then we blend that together and call that soil, right? So it's mm -hmm. a blend of in 
organic input ingredients that create a medium that holds roots that allows for drainage and nutrient uptake. Um, okay. Yeah. That's... Well, this is all very interesting, Lee. I, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time today to come on our show and share some of this information with us. Jim, you have anything? Thank you very much, Lee. Very interesting. Um, good background on um, soil techniques and, and how they impact the plant. So and good talk about music. Thank you very much. Um, you're welcome to hang on the line or if you need to jump, we understand because uh, what we'll finish the show with today is just talk about some uh, recent shows that have been going on um, in spite of uh, no audience because of COVID. Uh, Ray Anastasio finished up his run at the uh, Beacon Theater in uh, New York City. Uh, I caught the last one last Friday night. And uh, it was a great show. Uh, really, so and uh, Larry, I don't know if you saw it, but a really solid first tube. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I did, Jim, and and. and you know, overall, and, you know, Lee, you may have an opinion on this too. You know, the thing about the, uh, the beacon shows with Trey is that, you know, he played uh, what eight or nine shows in that theater, which is if you've never been in the beacon. It's a beautiful theater. It's a great place to see live music. And I think, you know, you would notice as well, Jim, uh, he was playing in an empty place, right? There was no crowds there because of the social distancing rules in New York and everything that's going on. Um, and at least the shows that I watched, they had their entire band turned around so that they were playing. They were facing towards the back of the stage, you know, with their back out to the audience. And whether that was their own, you know, subtle protest or way to say they missed the crowds, I don't know. But uh, I was impressed by how well Trey kept up the energy, uh, you know, because Fish is certainly one of those bands uh, that, that, that I think, you know, really plays off the, the, the crowd energy that it generates and kind of takes it to the next level. And that didn't seem to phase him in the least. He was just having a great, great time up there. What did you think? Yes. Um, well, I enjoyed it very much. Um, he had his uh, a lot of his tab band on stage. Plus, they brought in some strings, which was really nice. And I believe the lady's name is uh, Jennifer Hawthorne, his uh, uh, trumpet player. Yep. I saw her for the first time probably 10, 11 years ago when tab, the Trent Anastasio band, played Red Rocks. Uh, so she's been with him a good number of years. And, uh, yeah, they had the home section going. He had his um, same keyboard player whose name is slipping me right now. But um, mm -hmm. and drums, too. Uh, all people who had been in the tab band when I saw him 10, 11 years ago at Red Rock. So it brought back a lot of memories. What was interesting, too, is, you know, the day before was Thanksgiving at my house. We had our family here. And after dinner, somebody said, let's put on fans with the opera. So we watched about half of Phantom of the Opera, and uh, at the end of that Trey show uh, at the Beacon, as you know, he walked out into an empty uh, theater uh, yep. and out the back door, and it reminded me so much of Phantom of the Opera, seeing that big empty theater, sure. was great, walking out the back to the front door, actually. Yeah, no, I I, I hear you, and, and I uh, I think that's great, and I, uh, I I love the way they do it. Uh, Lee, though, I'd be interested in asking you, uh, you know, as, like you say, you know, you talk about going into one of these bars up there and blowing people's minds for a few hours. Uh, you know, have you guys ever played in a situation, you know, where there hasn't been an audience in front of you, and has it affected your playing one way or the other? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've done a few live live stream shows and things like that. It's it's not something that we've never been interested in. Um, and it 
Yeah, it definitely changes the energy. Um, it especially gets old. You know, the first few ones are exciting. People are logging on. They're doing the thing. They're joining. Mm-hmm. They're engaging. They're sharing. They're commenting. Um, and it eventually gets old. You know, your fans are like, yeah, cool. We saw this set last week. You know, it's yeah, it doesn't right. have the same effect. You know, I put the tab on my tongue, waited an hour, but you're just not getting me there, you know? <laughs> yep. So, yeah, no, the live energy is is missed for sure. And, you know, like I, back when they were just first, you know, when the, this whole video revolution was really unfolding and before it got to where it is now, you know, a lot of the things that the Grateful Dead were releasing were tapes of them in the studio, you know, singing a variety of songs. And they were always very well played. But it was kind of the same issue I used to have listening to their albums, which are beautiful. I think American Beauty is an absolutely beautiful album. Um, but it just, you know, you, you listen to it one way on the album, and then you hear an entirely different music when you listen to them play any of those songs in concert live. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's two sides of the same coin. But um, uh, I, I've always enjoyed the live versions and, you know, I've always made a point when my music collections, if, if, if any of the bands that I have music of have put out a live uh, album or two, I like to collect those and, and hopefully get a sense of what they really sound like when they're jazzed and they're playing in front of a room full of people. That's right. That's those are my favorite kinds of albums are the, are the live versions of, of all of it, even though I, I do enjoy studio recording, being out in front of the audience and capturing those moments cringeworthy and take me away or not. You know what I mean? There's, there's some of both all up in there and it just happens and you go with it. And some of the most beautiful mistakes happen and it's, it's a gorgeous situation. I tell everybody, you know, the very first time I saw the grateful dead, my very first concert, we all went in, was out at Ventura County. We're all hanging out and beautiful day right by the ocean. And the dead came out and they, they cranked into their first song and I'm standing there with my buddy and I'm scratching my head because everybody around me is laughing hysterically. Garcia standing up there, he's playing and nobody's singing. And I turned to my buddy and I'm like, what happens? And he's like, he forgot the words. <laughs> and I thought, he forgot the words. Who forgets the words to their own song? Well, after, you know, seeing the dead over a hundred times, what I came to realize is that's one of the things that I love about them <laughs> is that they do forget the words sometimes. And, you know, that to me, that just makes them, you know, a little more fun and unpredictable. You know, is Jerry going to screw it up in the middle of the song or is he going to really hammer it home? And even if he screws it up, if he throws in a great guitar solo, nobody seems to care very much. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> So that's always fun. Well, I see that we're getting to the end of our time here today. Lee, thank you again for joining us. Uh, Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. One more time, uh, please tell everyone how they get a hold of you. All right. Just uh, info at goodearthorganics.com is my email. You can visit the website at goodearthorganics.com, make your purchase, sign up for the newsletter, and uh, please check out invest.goodearthorganics.com as we are in our pre-IPO raise at the moment. Oh, very nice. Okay. Well, super. Thank you again. Um, And for uh, any of our listeners who are interested, uh, I am uh, hoping and imagining that uh, Dan Humiston will be able to get some of Lee's information and post it so that when you're listening to this show, you'll have access to that information if you want to reach out to Lee uh, and ask him any questions. Um, Jim, any last words? Larry, I'm uh, driving on uh, Route 2 in Massachusetts right now getting to my hotel so i'm gonna let you sign us out thank you sir please drive carefully up there and have a safe trip back to the barn uh, where i hope that i will speak to you next week again our guest today was lee spivey from good earth organics uh lee thank you for being on our show uh and to all of our listeners be safe stay healthy uh, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly thank you everyone talk to you next week 
listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name is Kira Reed, and I'd like to invite you to be inspired by the women who are leading in the cannabis industry. Each week, we will discuss empowerment, leadership, and what it means to be a woman in charge in marijuana, hemp, and CBD. As the founder of the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, I have had the great pleasure to get to know many brilliant and talented women who are CEOs, executives, politicians, advocates, and community leaders that are focused on creating a cannabis economy that is just, fair, and equal. We'll learn how these women make decisions, how they navigate a predominantly male industry, and what they're doing to level the playing field for women. I hope you'll join us.